chapter 65, verses 1 through 12. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of painted meat is in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Put your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen, chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Accor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes, and chose what I did not delight in. There's a famous, very famous oil painting called The Ship of Fools, well, behind me here, and it hangs in the Louvre in Paris, and it's a, a painting that is absolutely full of symbolism. It's a, a picture of ten people that are on board this ship or this vessel. Two people are overboard swimming around. And, uh, and, and the symbolism is rich. The, the people on board are, are feasting and they're uh, drinking and they're singing and unaware of where this vessel is going or where the waves are pushing the two people overboard are swimming around, and then on the on the, the ship, the mast, at the top of the mast, there's some there, there's some carrots dangling. And there's a picture of a man that's just grabbing for the carrot, but there's a small unnoticed detail of the carrot, which is a, a human skull. And that human skull is the thirteenth head in the painting. So unluck, unlucky in every imaginable way. You put all this together, and, and what this painting is depicting is people that are on this ship thinking everything is fine, and everything's perfect, and everything's okay, not knowing that they're heading to their demise. And this ship that is captainless is actually captained by the skull that's on top of the map which is indicating where the ship ultimately is heading and where these people are heading uh, to their death. Now, I give you that, that painting and that symbolism to say that's a, that's a fairly accurate description 
of our world. And I, I'm going to unpack this. Uh, most people would agree that our world is not right. If you went and just interviewed people on the street, in the town center, around, and, and, and you asked, is our world right? You, most people would say no. And they would have a multitude of reasons to tell you why the world's not right. Most people agree the world's not right, but most people disagree on what the world's greatest need is. So they agree it's not right, but then what, what's the greatest need that can solve this problem? That's where you get a myriad of different answers. Isaiah chapter 65 answers the question, what is our world's greatest need? Now, the short answer is salvation. But we're going to explore why does the world need salvation? What is the way of salvation? And then what's the critical companion to salvation that we see in this chapter? So first, the need for salvation. Verse 1, God speaks. He says, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. They weren't seeking God. But, that doesn't mean they weren't seeking. In fact, the, the first four, four verses of this chapter explain what the problem is and why there's a need for salvation. And what you're going to see in these verses is this is not a people that aren't seeking, they're not seeking God, but they're actually people that are incessantly seeking. Look at the end of verse 2. Following their own devices, that word devices can read thoughts uh, as well. So it means they're, they're following their own thoughts, right? their own thoughts and structures for life. Verse 3 sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on brick. The garden was the, the center for false religion. And that was an unauthorized place to make sacrifices. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 21. And then bricks, that was an unauthorized material for, for an altar, for building an altar. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 27, says that an altar is to be built with uh, uncut stones. So not cut stones like bricks. Deuteronomy 18, or, or verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. Deuteronomy 18 forbids communicating with the dead to predict the future. Verse 4, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, speak of pigs uh, as unclean food. So these people are they're seeking, but they're seeking everything, not only not God, but even against what he had prescribed. Now here's what's really, really interesting about the first four verses of Isaiah 65. Commentators debate whether God is speaking to the Gentiles, and by that I mean the nations uh, outside of Israel, or are, is God speaking of Israel, right? his called people, the nation of Israel. 
And they debate because if you look at verse 1, it says to a nation that was not called by my name. Well, that's not Israel. Israel was called by God's name. So this must be speaking of the Gentile nations, all the nations in the world outside of Israel. This is who God's speaking to, right? But then you get into verse 2, and now he's speaking, it seems to be, of his people, Israel, who are, are being very religious. I mean, they're making all kinds of sacrifices. They're just doing it in the wrong place and in the wrong way, and and they're really adopting the false religions around them of the day. And so you say, well, who is God speaking to? It almost seems like he's lumping together the Gentiles and the Israelites and lumping them all into one. Aren't those, aren't those people very different? Israel was a very religious people. The Gentiles were the you know, nations that didn't necessarily worship God, came up with their own religion. Or to bring it to today, you say, well, isn't there a big difference between religious people and non-religious people? Religious people? Isn't there a big difference? Isn't there a, a, a difference among them that God would have to make a distinction of who he's speaking to? And I, I'm going to tell you, not really. You know, on the surface, if you look at a very religious person and how they behave, where they go, they go to church on Sundays and they do various things, and you look at the, uh, the life of a very non religious person, on the surface, you look at those two and you say, well, they couldn't be any different. And yet, what we see in this passage is that there's a commonality. A commonality below the surface between different kinds of people. You say, what is the commonality? There's two verses that unpack this. Look at verse 7. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. The mountains were the places of false worship in that day. And, and the reason they went to the mountaintop is they figured if we get on the mountaintop, we'll catch the eye of the false gods. We'll get to a place where the false gods can see us on top of the mountain. And then look at verse 11. Who set a table for fortune and filled cups of mixed wine for destiny. Fortune and destiny were well-known false gods at the time. What you see there is a whining and a dining of the gods. Like, if we whine them and dine them, maybe they'll act for us. So you bring all this together, you say, what's the commonality between, in this context, the Israelites, God's people, and the Gentiles, the nations around them? The commonality is that both were wrapped up in the sin of control and manipulation. The Gentiles were trying to control and manipulate false gods to get what they want, and God's people were trying to control and manipulate them to get what they wanted. And so there's absolute common ground in this sin of, of control, of incessantly seeking control. You know, Isaiah uses the word mountains in this chapter a lot. They were, they were climbing the mountains, trying to get to the top, trying to get the attention of the gods or God to get what they want. There's a lot of commonality between a religious person and a non-religious person. Both are seeking salvation. When I say salvation, I just mean everyone knows something's wrong. Something's wrong in this world. Something's wrong in my life. This isn't how things should be. I want things to be right. I want purpose. I want hope. I want fulfillment. I want joy. 
My life has a lot of pain, right? That's seeking salvation. And there's a commonality in, in control and manipulation to try to get it, right? Now, here's the other commonality. What's the result of seeking control and of, of, of attempting to manipulate God? Or if you're not a believer, a philosophy, whatever it may be, whatever you're going to look to, to get what you want. What's the result of that? And here's the other commonality. Look at verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. When you're seeking control and manipulation, climbing the mountain, whatever that may be, that you think is going to get you what you want, make things right, fix the problem. What happens is you climb that mountain and you look around you at everyone else that hasn't figured out that that's the mountain to climb. And the I'm too holy for you said it's, it's really speaking of elitism. And elitism says, I'm right. You're wrong. I'm the solution, or this is the solution. You're the problem, or this is the problem. It's, it's, a, it's a first and second class citizenship. My way is superior, your way is inferior. And what that does is that absolutely leads to isolation, it leads to division, it leads to elitism, right? Which is always divisive, always isolating. Don't come near me. Because you haven't figured it out yet. You haven't climbed the right mountain. And I spoke several weeks ago about secondary issues. And I gave some examples of secondary issues, like culture, or politics, or worship style, or how to help the poor, or how to raise children, right? or how the United States should get involved in global conflict. I can keep going with these secondary issues. Here's the problem. When those secondary issues become gods, and by that I mean, when they become mountains, that we climb, thinking that that is going to solve the world's problem or problems, that's when elitism becomes. Right? We have the secondary issue that's going to fix this world. And if everybody would just figure out that this secondary issue is the solution, it'd be a much better place. So that leads to elitism. It leads to isolation. It leads to looking down your nose at people. And it leads ultimately to hatred. That's where elitism goes. It leads to hatred, which leads to ultimately unchecked violence. And we see plenty of that in our world. We don't like to hear this because we don't like to hear this in general. But secondary issues live in the gray. Not black and white. And in general, in life, we don't like to think that things are in the gray. It's either black or it's white. And that develops this elitism of I'm right, you're wrong, or vice versa. Secondary issues live in the gray. And here's what I would say. 
If you find yourself, and, and by the way, when I say secondary issues, I'm giving a point of application here, but it's no different than what was going on in Isaiah 65. Right? These were people incessantly seeking salvation through all the various mountaintop gods that were available to make things right or to fix their problems. So, secondary issue. If you find yourself getting dogmatic about a secondary issue, doesn't mean that you, you have an opinion, and there's opinions, and it's in the gray, and there's reasons why you believe what you do about a secondary issue. Absolutely. But if you find yourself getting dogmatic, that's a good sign that that secondary issue has taken on godlike steps, or it's become a mountain that you're climbing, right, to fix what is wrong. And anytime we worship a false god or climb the mountain of a false god, it leads to just the opposite of what we're actually looking for. It leads to misery. It leads to isolation, division. does not lead to deep soul rest and satisfaction. So, what is our world's greatest need? We've looked at this commonality, right? Whether you're religious or irreligious, that commonality is control and manipulation to get what you want that's going to fix this world. And seeing that commonality and seeing the need for a salvation that actually is true and works, right? When we see the need for salvation, now the question becomes then, what is this salvation? What is the way to this salvation that is what the world needs and its greatest need? What is it? Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Now, what does this verse mean? Well, that day, when they made grape juice for wine, they would harvest the grapes, and they would throw the grapes into the wine press where the grapes would be trodden or smashed. And the juice that came out of the wine press was, right when it came out, it was unfermented wine. Another phrase or word for grape juice. But if they then took that grape juice and fermented it, it would become wine. But when they harvested the grapes, some of the grapes were, I mean, they were ripe. And they were oozing, right, with, with juice that was coming out of them. And they would, they would actually, what they call it, the spontaneous juice, they would collect as, as special, really high-value, special juice, which verse 8 says, the new wine. And that juice would never make it to the wine press. Now, a couple chapters earlier, in Isaiah 63.3, God is... Speaking of the anointed one, of Jesus, and what it says of Jesus in Isaiah 63, 3, Jesus is spoken of as trotting the winepress alone. It says he tramples them in his wrath. So the winepress is symbolic of God's judgment. What Isaiah is saying here is that all, everyone merits the winepress. But, 
God saved some from that blind press of judgment. And so what we learn here about salvation is that salvation is by grace alone. By grace alone. Now let me tie this together with the need for salvation that I just spoke of. The, the commonality, remember, between religious and irreligious and non-religious is control and manipulation. Alright, so for a you know, religious person, that can be uh, attempting to control or manipulate God to get what you want. For a, for a non-religious person, that could be um, controlling or manipulating according to a certain philosophy or ideology right, to, to get what you want. But the idea is, if I do X, that will merit or earn Y. Or if I do X, I'm entitled to Y. That's control and manipulation. You get what you want by your behavior. Now, when it comes to salvation, there's only one thing that you and I merit or earn. Or another way to say it, there's one thing that we're entitled to. And that's judgment. Now, we live in a world where we talk about entitlement a lot in a very negative way. Right? We say things like, this generation is so entitled. That generation is so entitled. Right? And entitlement, we talk about they're, they're, I hate entitlement. Well, here's the reality. We're all entitled. Every person on the face of the earth is entitled. What are we entitled to? Judgment. That's it. And so when Isaiah says here in Isaiah 65, he opens the chapter with, with those who did not ask for me, or those who did not seek me, talking about the people, they weren't asking for God, they weren't seeking God. That would be the case for every one of us coming out of the womb. We don't come out of the womb seeking God. In fact, given an infinite number of choices and chances and opportunities in our life on our own, we would never seek God. You seek God if you are seeking God. It's because he first sought you. Jesus tells us to his disciples that a pointed statement he makes to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me. He's looking at his disciples, right? And you know his disciples. The, the, the parts of the Gospels where they're saying, hey, Jesus, I'm the greatest. You're the greatest. I'll get your right hand, right? You know, we know Peter, you know. I'm never going to fail you, right? They were, they were a confident bunch at times. And Jesus said, no, you didn't choose me. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So salvation, when we talk about salvation, the one thing that we are all are entitled to is judgment because of our sin. God saves us from that judgment. Salvation is by grace alone. And not only that, but who is the God of salvation? He saves by grace alone, but who is this God it's saved by grace alone. Did you notice the description of God in the first two verses of the chapter? Verse 1. God says, I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. I said, here am I. Here am I. 
that communicates an eagerness to God. He's eager not only to seek, but to be sought. This is a God that's eager, eager to be known. And then verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. That phrase, spread out my hands, is an expression of love. That's God saying, I spread out my hands, I express my love to a rebellious people. In other words, I express my love to enemies and a people who have rebelled against me. You know, loving people who love you is easy. But loving an enemy who's hurt you or offended you, and I would just ask that you take yourself to that place. Maybe it's in your past history, maybe it's currently. But to love someone, genuinely love someone who has offended you, hurt you, and that's hard. That's really hard. Mike Brown, who was a Jacksonville police officer for many years, was sitting in the courtroom when Sequoia Crime, the man who had shot Mike Brown's son, Mike Brown Jr., when he was 21 years old, Mike Brown was sitting in that courtroom seven years later when the trial finally came to be, and in walks Sequoia Crime. Mike Brown would say before he, before he walked in the room, he anticipated what he would feel when this man who had shot his son walked in the room. He anticipated anger. He anticipated vengeance. He says, but it played out differently. In fact, here's what he said about that, that moment that his son's murder walked into the room. When the day came for court, and I see him for the first time. I tell you, I just love him. I can't explain it. I didn't have the feelings I thought I was going to have. I thought I was going to be angry. I hate you. I want you to die. None of them. Boy, a crime was sentenced to life in prison. Mike Brown wrote him a letter in prison. In that letter, he said, I forgive you. Mike Brown, the follower of Christ, knew Christ. He said, I forgive you, and I want to ask a favor. I miss my son. I miss Mike Brown Jr. deeply. I'm going to ask you a favor. Would you fill in for him? In other words, would you become the boy of crime would tell you that when, before he got that letter in prison, he had been praying to God. He had been praying and asking God, God, if you're real, if your forgiveness is real, if your love is real, then I would hear from my friend. And that letter came. My friend went on to adopt the Koya Prime as his son, the man who had murdered his biological son. He went on to adopt him. It's a beautiful story. And I share it because when God says, I spread out my hands to a rebellious people, he 
God saying, I love enemies and rebels like you and me. I love them. And I am eager to seek them and for them to seek me and to experience salvation by grace alone. Now, if you stop here and go, God's love is amazing and His grace is amazing and, and, and everybody's going to be fine and everybody's going to go to heaven. And this is just amazing, right? Well, we've been missing a very important point about salvation. And that is that salvation has a companion. And without this companion, salvation doesn't exist. So when we talk about what is the world's greatest need, the world's greatest need is salvation. The need for it, the way of it, God's love, God's grace. But this third point, the world needs a salvation that has a companion to it, that without that companion, there is no salvation. There are a number of verses in this chapter that speak to this companion. And the companion is there's harsh language in this chapter about God's judgment. We've looked at the wine press. That's symbolic of God's judgment, but it gets much more direct. Look at verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. And then to verse 12. And this is probably the most direct. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not hear. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. That is harsh judgment right and you can see why many people, and maybe you, struggle with how in the world can a God of love speak like this? I mean, this, these seem like incompatible, opposite extremes on the spectrum. I mean, how can God say in the same 12 verses, I spread out my hand? which is an expression of his love, and then here say, I'm going to lead them to the slaughter. You can see why, and maybe you go, I, I don't get that. That seems like two different gods. And there's many who would say, that's why I, I'm fine with a God of love, but I, I've got to reject what mostly is the God of the Old Testament with verses like this. And what I want you to see is that wrath and love are not only not incompatible, 
One needs the other. One needs the other. I'll explain it this way. And, and all of you, whether you have children or not, you'll you experience this or you watch and you can understand this. But if you love your child, and your child uh, sins or disobeys or someone is about to hurt your child, right? there is a rightful, angry expression that bubbles up in you that flows out of your love for your child to protect your child and love your child. Or let me say it this way, and I'm risking being trivial here, but if your child is on your back patio, and there's a lot that is getting after your child and trying to sting your child, what do you do? You say, that wasp is such a beautiful creation of God. That wasp has every right to fly around and to, and to nail my child and to hurt my child. I would not dare touch that wasp. No, what do you do? You smash it. Why? Because you love your child and you want to protect your child. Like wrath flows out of love. In fact, if you saw your child being hurt through their disobedience, sin, sin was trying to sting them, or disobedience was, was trying to sting them, or someone else was trying to sting them, and you didn't do anything, someone that's watching would be very unforced to say, I don't know if that, first, that, that parent loves their child, right? They would doubt your love. Wrath is a rightful expression flowing out of a deep love. Now, here's the key. Wrath is not an attribute of God. God is love. God is holy. And God is just. But God is not wrath. In fact, before the foundation of the earth, God existed in the Trinity in perfect love, holiness, delight. There was no wrath. Why? Because there was no sin. There is no wrath when there's no when there's no sin. But then when there is sin that is, a, that is attempting to destroy God's children, that's when wrath comes out of God. It is a rightful expression that arises from his holy love in opposition to wickedness, evil, and darkness. Therefore, we uphold the priority of God's love and uphold the necessity of his wrath as a rightful expression of love towards evil people. Now, here's the problem. God's wrath doesn't play favorites. God's wrath is poured out on every bit of sin and disobedience and evil and wickedness that exists on this earth. Whether it exists in Hitler or whether it exists in Mother Teresa. Whether it exists inside the church or whether it exists outside the church. Sin is sin. Evil is evil. Disobedience is disobedience. Right? God didn't give Israel a free pass and say, well, 
These are my people all overlook their sins, but the Gentiles, I don't know, hundreds of them. No. God's wrath doesn't play favorites. And so the question would be then, how, how would he save anybody and remain a just God? And how would God save anybody and remain a just, holy, and loving God? And the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God poured out his wrath on Christ instead of us. Through the wisdom of the cross, the love of God satisfies the, the wrath of God to redeem a people of God. You see that? God's love, through the wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ, satisfied the wrath of God to redeem a people of God. So, when we talk about the cross and Jesus dying on the cross, it can appear as though the cross is trying to resolve a tension in God's character. Like the cross is trying to somehow resolve this tension in God's character. When no, the cross doesn't resolve God's character. The cross reveals God's character in a beautiful way. The cross of Jesus Christ reveals God's character in a beautiful way. God confronts wickedness and evil with wrath. Not in spite of his love, but because of his love. Now, what is our world's greatest need? That's a more relevant and critical question for you to get your hands around than you probably realize. And here's why. There is a version of Christianity that is becoming very popular in our culture. And this version of Christianity has intentionally disconnected from the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament. But it's disconnected because it cannot believe in a God who would condemn his beloved creation to eternal torment. Nor, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, can it hold on to God pouring out his wrath on his son without labeling it as divine child abuse? It's unacceptable. This version of Christianity saying, listen, love wins. God is love. And this Old Testament that it lays out a wrathful God or parts of the New Testament that do, there's no way that a God of love can condemn his beloved creation to eternal torment, and certainly what he did to his son is divine child abuse, and that is unacceptable. Now, that version of Christianity is, is growing in popularity, and I say it's dangerous because it is proclaimed as a version of, or not even a version, proclaimed as Christianity. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It has absolutely deconstructed who God is. In fact, I would, I would say that the, the, the phrase that well captures this version of Christianity is this. It's the kingdom without the king. It was the kingdom without the king. Say, so what's that mean? It's this. It wants all of God's blessings 
without submitting to his loving reign and rule. It wants progress without his presence. It wants justice without his justification. It wants the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners to God. It wants society to conform to a new standard of morality without God's standard of personal holiness. Come back to the question. What's our world's greatest need? What our world needs is not a watered-down, palatable philosophy under the guise of Christianity. What our world needs is the God of the Scriptures from start to finish. A God whose wrath is a powerful expression of his love, his deep love for his people. That's what our world needs. A God whose wrath flows out of his love to protect his people and to renew his people and to renew his world. A rightful expression of his holy love. And that rightful expression of his holy love is Jesus Christ. Our world needs Jesus. And the Jesus that is talked about in the scriptures from start, Genesis, to Revelation, that Jesus. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus alone. Next slide. Father, your scriptures are beautiful. And the truth and what we hear in Isaiah 65 of who you are and what salvation is and what our world desperately needs, our hearts come alive to the description in one chapter of your intense love and your intense wrath and how those come together beautifully. And that your wrath is an expression of your love. That you are a God of love and you're a God of justice. Father, if there are those here who have never responded to your love by turning in faith to Jesus Christ, the one who satisfied your wrath on their behalf, Father, would you draw them by your Holy Spirit and that if they struggled with this God of vengeance and this God of wrath, that, that you by your spirit would open their eyes to the truth of this passage, that your wrath actually accentuates your love. That they would respond in faith to your love and find rest and comfort and security and protection in your love expressed through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that, that salvation is by grace alone. We don't merit it, we don't earn it that you have given us salvation freely and that your son earned it for us. Your son merited it for us. Father, help us to sing now in response. 
Help us to see and respond to part alive to your Son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.